0: Today's featured organization is O-Positive Festival. The 8th annual O-Positive Festival will be in Kingston on October 6th through the 8th. The festival seeks to create long-term relationships between creatives and health and wellness providers to help strengthen local communities. Our year-round efforts culminate in one-day and week-long celebrations, during which underinsured artists and musicians create and perform in exchange for a variety of services donated by doctors, dentists, and complementary care providers. Get your tickets and learn more at opositivefestival.org today. Welcome back to Spotlight 19. Justin and Tracy here. And on today's episode, we are featuring Sarge's interview with... John Fazzo. You let go. Now, this is via telephone, uh, which was recorded on September 20th. Last week was a district work week, so there were no votes going on, although a lot of bad news about Republicans again attempting to repeal the Affordable Care Act. So, here's a little bit of a background on how we got John Fazzo to appear on the show. We had been reaching out to him since April, four times in writing, and countless times via phone. It wasn't until the town hall event in Esopus back on August 31st that I asked John Faso if he would appear on Spotlight 19, you know, in front of the whole audience, and he said he would. Since then, Saja has corresponded with John Faso's press secretary to hammer out a time. His office stated that he would only be able to do it by phone, and for 15 minutes only. Although we did make it clear how close we are to his Kingston office, and more time would be best, and that it would only be myself and Saja present. So, then on the morning of September 20th, the office reached out to see if we could do it that day. This was short notice, but we responded quickly to let them know that we could do it after 6pm. They confirmed at 5 p.m. and we went ahead with the interview. So kudos to Saja for getting it together in time. I think she did a great job. And what we're going to do today is I'm going to play each of the questions and John Fazzo's answer. And then I will follow up with a fact check. So here we go.
1: All right, Representative Fazzo, welcome to Spotlight 19. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. As we only have a limited amount of time, let's just jump right in.
2: Sure. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you so much for being on board with protecting DREAMers or DACA recipients in this country. However, the BRIDGE Act, which you support, keeps DREAMers from a meaningful path to citizenship, and the Recognizing American Children Act allows the government to still deport DREAMers if they become unemployed and also keeps them in limbo for up to five years. Why haven't you come out in support of the DREAM Act, which provides a meaningful path to citizenship for these DREAMers?
2: Well, I'm trying to accomplish, uh, deal deal with what is possible to pass within the House, and I do think that um, we have two conflicting imperatives here. One, uphold the rule of law, and two, recognize that uh, people that were brought to this country as children um, had no choice in that matter, and that we should attempt to deal with those folks differently and When President Obama issued his uh, order back in two thousand and twelve, uh, he explicitly said that this was temporary, and so the President Trump is now five years later given the Congress six months to come up with a plan to enact uh, this and legalize the status of the dreamers and I certainly think that uh, this should be done in conjunction with uh, efforts that I have and, and others are making relating to other aspects of the immigration system but I do think that the uh, issue of citizenship um, i don't I want to normalize the status legalize the status of dreamers in the country, but also if they then want to become a citizen, I think it's imperative that they follow the rules and Get online with all the other people that want to become citizens as well. So, I think that is a path uh, ultimately, and I think it's something that would greatly relieve the anxiety if we enacted um, uh, some of the laws that I have proposed.
0: In his answer, John Faso does not come out in support of the Dream Act, which provides the pathway to citizenship to the Dreamers and ensures that they will not be deported. And it's unclear to me why he won't, other than these mentions of, quote, you know, the law. However, dreamers have already had to prove and comply with a lot of requirements to even qualify for this program at all. So there's no reason why they should not be offered this path to citizenship. Uh, I don't think so.
1: Moving on to a different topic, last week you voted in favor of a spending bill for 2018 that includes massive cuts to the Environmental Protection Agency, although it is less than the amount requested by the president. Given that Hoosick Falls, a community here in New York 19, was designated as a Superfund site by the EPA and is largely reliant on that agency's resources, why would you vote to further cut funding for this agency that is so vital to our communities here in the district?
2: Well, in, indeed, the who's Falls situation I'm very familiar with. I've been to that community many times, uh, both before and after I've been elected. So the, there were specific proposals that were made by the Trump administration that were rejected, which would have reduced the funding for uh, communities affected by um, polluted sites that are Superfund sites. So much of, much or all of that funding was restored in the appropriations measure. And keep in mind as well that the president had proposed rather dramatic cuts uh, through a whole host of non defense discretionary spending in the budget. And I opposed most of those, not every single aspect of it, but most of those. And in the budget committee, when we were given a uh, the current non-defense discretionary budget number is 516 billion. The president proposed 452 billion dollars, which was a dramatic reduction in those categories, and that included many programs: water, uh, air, uh, environment, uh, water and sewer, uh, Superfund, etc. Well, instead of 452, we came back with a 511 billion dollar number. And so, by and large, most of the dramatic cuts to the EPA and and other agencies like NIH were avoided. So um, every every appropriation measure, when you consider that the appropriations for the budget uh, for the federal government are uh, well over $4 trillion. Now, that's every aspect of spending. The discretionary portions of that are smaller than that, obviously, but there are aspects in that spending plan that, you or I might agree with or disagree with, but at the end of the day, you have to make a decision as to, is this something in the totality that you agree with in terms of moving the country forward? And I'm pleased to say that this is the first time in many years that the House of Representatives has actually passed all 12 of the spending bills prior to the end of the the beginning of the fiscal year. So I'm pleased at that. That's something that I had argued strenuously for. And it's vitally important that the government agencies be given a financial blueprint, a fiscal blueprint, that they can plan their activities for the year. And I'm hopeful that the Senate will pass these appropriation bills soon as well.
1: Understood. But the EPA will be operating at levels far below with than what it was given back in 2010. And it's really alarming when the incidence of these types of environmental crises are increasing, as we've seen right here at home.
0: Here, John Faso tries to justify the EPA budget cuts by saying the cuts are less than what Trump proposed. He again defers to his love of policy and procedure, and prides himself on the fact that the Republican-controlled House was able to pass a budget in a timely fashion. But the budget passing timely doesn't matter when so many important agencies and those which are very important to New York 19, including health and human services, will have to make do with less. His answer also skirts the very real effects EPA budget cuts can have on this district, and in particular, the resources available to the people of Hoosick Falls.
1: Also in the spending bill was a negation of the Department of Labor's role of requiring broker-dealers to give retirement advice in the best interest of their clients. Given the breed that we've seen on the part of the banking industry during the financial crisis, why reduce accountability for this industry? It is really alarming to me, and to be frank.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's an issue that I'm concerned about as well. And uh, again, I'm hoping that we can come to a resolution on this that is somewhat different from where the appropriations still had it. I agree that... Um, And and I'll tell you, the financial community here in the district, I think I've gotten about 50 communications from people in favor of it, from people that work in the industry, and probably an equal number of communications from people who work in the industry who are against it, who feel that it's onerous, that it's going to make it more expensive for uh, small investors to receive investment advice. So there's really a, a conflicting opinion here, and I'm hoping that we can come to a, a reasonable solution on this, but I agree that the current system is imperfect, and it should be looked at more more closely.
1: Do you agree that broker or dealer should be held accountable for the inven- investments that they do make?
2: Yeah, I do. But see, here's the here's the rub. The issue is if there is if you are a broker-dealer and you're dealing with a, a uh, account holder who has a limited um, size of their account, there's a question, and this is what broker-dealers have t- said to me, that there's a limit in terms of how much time and effort that they can actually spend on an uh, account holder with someone that has very small amounts of, of investment. And if, that, if the... If the broker-dealers decide that the liability that they might incur for handling and having this increased fiduciary role uh, on a very small account, the argument is is that they will become reluctant to handle those kind of accounts, and then people with smaller asset values will have less access to uh, expertise from broker-dealers advising them on their investments. Now, I think it's really important for people to make sure that, that they understand up front when they're making an investment or they're in, in a 401k or a 403b plan. Very important for them to understand up front what the responsibilities and obligations are of the uh, financial firm that is selling them these investments. And and that's why I think the old Latin phrase caveat emptor, buyer beware, is really really important. So. I want. We've,
1: we've seen, those. that uh, these brokers often prey on these small-time investors and make bad investments, and then they're not held accountable, which is why the rule was put into place in the first place. But since we have limited time, I would urge you to be a leader on that issue and really listen to the constituents here in the district that were harmed. Uh, by these types of risky investments. But moving straight along... Since well, let, me, let, me just
2: conclude, let me just conclude there, though, that uh, I am listening, and I think it's, it's actually a more complicated issue than, than how uh, you've represented it, but it is, it is one that I'm very conscious of, and I'm, I'm still working on this because I'm hopeful that we can come to a reasonable solution on that issue.
0: This is a pretty complicated topic and John Faso does his usual expressions of concern without offering what he will do about the rollback of a rule that protects people trying to make an investment of their hard-earned money by relying on the expertise of a financial advisor. He alludes to small banks and businesses in the area having concerns about high costs of being a fiduciary without identifying the names of those banks. Spotlight 19 is doing research on identifying these banks. But this weekend we met with Doug Adams who is running for a legislator position in Ulster County in this year's local elections. He is an investment advisor here in New York 19 who has a fee-only practice, which means he will only act in the best interests of his clients. So the rule certainly was not prohibiting small businesses from forming in the area, as Faso states. I personally can't believe he says up beware for investments as important as your retirement nest egg. If lawyers and doctors have a duty to their clients and patients There is no reason why investment advisors shouldn't either.
1: Just moving right along, since we are coming up on our time limit, we've rarely, if ever, heard from you on the issue of education. Uh, Secretary DeVos' main agenda is to increase school choice by implementing a voucher system. Here in New York 19, which includes many rural school districts, there's no choice since schools are so separated by vast distances. And one of the solutions she has proposed for rural schools is to facilitate more online options for rural students. So this is a two-part question. Yes or no, do you support vouchers? And how would they work here if you do support them when many of the sisters don't even have reliable Internet access?
2: Well, I, I think that the whole voucher issue is one that is extremely politically charged. I do think that there have been some successful experiments, like, for instance, in the District of Columbia, and I have uh, supported the program that exists in D.C. But these really ultimately uh, come come to bear in more urbanized or more densely populated school district systems. It's much more difficult because you don't have the choice and the alternatives in rural areas. So I don't see it as being a pressing issue in rural areas, for the most part.
1: Uh, I think you may have misunderstood because her solution is to implement choice in all areas of the country, and one of the choices that she'll allow rural students to have is to have go to online schools. So, is that something you would support, or would you speak out against that?
2: You know, I I, I think that at the at the secondary school level, at the high school level, it'd be pretty difficult to effectively uh, communicate what you would want in an educational setting in an online opportunity. Now, I have supported some innovative programs that would allow, say, high school students to take online college courses taught by uh, highly ranked professors from, from very prestigious universities take those courses free of charge, and be able to get college credit for those courses. I think that is a something that is, is, a, is a real advantage for people taking advantage of the technology that exists today. But as you uh, mentioned, this is going to be limited for areas that don't have the adequate broadband communications access. And that's something that I've actually been working on with local phone companies, and um, uh, other providers in rural parts of our district because having access to quality and reliable broadband brand and cell communications are something that really are important in this district and throughout upstate New York.
1: I'm glad you touched on that because that was actually one of my questions about broadband, but I think you answered the question.
0: It seems that John Faso was not familiar with what Saja was asking him. That is Bessie DeVos's statement that rural students could utilize potential vouchers for online education in lieu of public education. We believe the lack of familiarity might have something to do with John Fazzo's lack of focus on education. None of his formal press releases have even mentioned the Department of Education and... From his previous record, we know that at one point he was in support of dissolving the Department of Education entirely.
1: Moving right along, your office has also indicated to me in my calls uh, placed to the D.C. office that you don't have a position yet on the Graham-Cassidy bill, the latest iteration of an Obamacare repeal. That will definitely lead to more people here in New York 19 uninsured. You've twice voted to repeal Obamacare, after and after its failure this summer, you indicated that you'd be working on some Obamacare fixes. Will you vote against the Graham-Cassidy bill, which will definitely result in more uninsured here in New York 19?
2: Well, I, I frankly, at this juncture, I'm doubtful that it will make it to the House. I'm frankly dubious that it would, it would be uh, passed the Senate. And uh, the last time I looked closely at Graham Cassidy was about last March or April, and I was frankly skeptical of of its impact upon our state at that time. But we are are on a district work week now, so I am waiting to get a briefing from the health staff uh, in the House uh, so that I can better formulate a position on it. But uh, as I said, I'm pretty skeptical of the approach that they're taking. And I do think that it would have uh, an overly broad and dramatically negative impact from what my recollection was of the discussion back in April uh, on our state.
1: Is it your position that the Medicaid expansion, one of the things that Graham Cassidy proposes is to redistribute Medicaid expansion funds away from New York and to redistribute it to all of the states? Is that something you'd be in support of?
2: No. That's a feature that I I don't like. Now, let me me tell you that one of the underlying problems with the Medicaid expansion is that the program is growing at a rate and at a level that is going to be unaffordable for uh, our citizens and the federal government and taxpayers. So it's vitally important that we come up with reforms that can slow the growth of Medicaid uh, spending because it is rapidly outstripping our ability to pay. We are going, and I see this in my vantage on the budget committee, right now, we're at about $20 trillion in debt, and within 10 years, that's gonna be $29 trillion. And the Medicaid expansion is one of the main drivers of uh, our out-year deficits. Now, it is not, in and of itself, the main driver, but there are other factors, but it is one of those factors, and so, I do think we have to find ways that we can slow the growth of Medicaid spending, but I'm not convinced that the proposal that we're seeing from the Senate is the way to go.
1: I agree with you that the Senate proposal is not the way to go.
0: Uh, It concerns us that John Faso has not read the Graham-Cassidy bill since March, or at least had one of his legislative staff read it. You should all keep in mind that Faso has various staffers and some dedicated to advising him on legislation. Given the fact that it was so heavily covered in the news and concerns health care, something that is so important in this district, and that he stated he would be working on as part of a problem solvers caucus, I was appalled to hear that he hadn't read the bill. Again, he would not commit to not voting in favor of this disastrous bill, although Saja pointed out to him it would reduce funding for Medicaid recipients in New York 19.
1: My last question for you is you just mentioned the deficit. Uh, the GOP unveiled its tax plan last week, and one of the pieces of it is to eliminate the federal estate tax, which is always improperly called the debt tax for estates worth over $5.4 million, of which there are less than 1% here in New York 19. Now, that's a way, in my opinion, to fund the government. Why do you think that the estate tax needs to be eliminated when it really affects those people in New York 19 and it's a way to provide some funding for the federal government?
2: It actually doesn't raise a lot of money um, in, in the scheme of things, um, and it does cost an enormous amount, uh, to for taxpayers to comply with it, and it is the estate tax is one of those uh, uh, taxes that is very strongly opposed by farmers and people that have uh, successful small businesses, etc. So I think this is just one of the discussions that we we will have in this process. But as a as in the totality of federal spending, it actually is a very uh, um, minor part of the revenue base of the federal government.
1: But you agree that it would decrease the amount of revenue that the federal gover- government receives at all because it wouldn't be getting this tax anymore.
2: Well, the, argue- the other argument is that the, um, to counter that is that uh, people have already paid taxes on the value of that estate. They've already paid taxes on the earnings and the income that they use to build the basis of the estate. The estate tax generates for the federal government roughly uh, $20 billion a year, and uh, the many uh, people who have looked at this, on, in inside and outside of the government, have said that the cost of compliance for taxpayers to comply with the estate tax is about 15 to 18 billion dollars a year. So. From a revenue generating standpoint, it is not a a big revenue generator for the federal government. The other the other aspect of the estate tax is actually is a little more troubling to me than the federal, is the uh, state of New York, which imposes its state tax at a very low level, and this acts as a real incentive for successful people, particularly those small business people that I mentioned, to move themselves out of New York State. Uh, so that they don't have to comply with the state estate tax upon their debt. Um, it is, it is some, a phenomenon that is occurring routinely and regularly, and it's, it's actually a big problem for our state because uh, this, the exemption level in New York State should be significantly raised because it is simply uh, acting as a discouragement for uh, affluent people to stay in New York.
0: The GOP unveiled its tax plan, and Saja decided to focus on the estate tax, which taxes those estates worth over $5.4 million. Now, that's less than 1% of properties here in the district that qualify for this tax. In Fazo's claims, there is little evidence that small businesses or farms have been hurt by it. Only 50 small farms even owe this tax, Most small businesses and farms don't pay this tax, although special rules are already in place for valuing farmland, which helps to keep its value low for estate tax purposes. Repeal of this tax would result in almost uh, $270 billion less for the federal government over 10 years. Now, finally, the argument that the revenue from the tax is the same as it costs to comply is an exaggeration. This overstatement usually includes costs people would have to pay for anyway, like hiring a lawyer to draw up a will. These costs have in the past usually been less than 10% of the revenue from the tax. We hope Faso will correct his claim here.
1: I do have to disagree with the usual talking point that you have about people moving outside of the district because when I looked into what the percentage actually was, it's really less than 2% of the population that's moving out of New York 19 and more and more you're hearing about people moving into the district. So how do you square the actual statistics with this point that we've heard from you a few times now that people are moving out of the district in Grove?
2: Well, it's, it's I didn't make this number up. The U.S. Census Bureau said it. Um, just recently, in the last year, that every single county in the 19th district has lost population in the last. Right,
1: po- but it's less, it's less than two percent of the actual population, so it's not a meaningful number to say that there's a huge, you know, a population loss crisis. Which is, I think, on your Twitter at one point you did mention that it was a huge problem.
2: Oh, I th- I think it is a huge problem, and I think that uh, losing even two percent of our population. Um, uh, over a period of time or or even uh, if it's every five years or every three years, that's a significant factor when you look at the issue of where are jobs being created. People are are voting with their feet and moving out of upstate New York and this has been well documented. So, if you look at the school population, at many of our school districts, you'll find that they're down 15, 20, 25 percent from where they were 20 years ago. Now, there are a lot of factors that go into that. It's not all you know, state level uh, issues. But upstate New York is being depopulated, and it is a very, very serious concern. And you talk to any small business person or people, the younger people that are looking for work, uh, the job opportunities aren't here as prevalent as they are elsewhere in the country. And so that's one of the reasons why people leave. And obviously, they leave because they'd rather. You know live in an urbanized setting or that they'd rather live in a warmer climate all of those factors go into it but I do think that the overall trends that we've seen in upstate New York really for the last 30 or 40 years are very very uh, disquieting
1: well uh, well we we Justin and I are actually recently moved to the district and when we go out and talk to people and meet small business owners we see more and more people moving to kind of the centers of the district, like Kingston, for example, where more and more small businesses are coming into the district. So, uh, I'd have to counter uh, your opinion with our experience um, that there are people moving into the district, and I think I'm hopeful that uh, with more measures, um, there will be movement into the district, but um, I think we are running out of time, but... um, I really do thank you for taking the time to be on the show. I'm sure uh, you know that we're critical, but I think it's really important to have these conversations on both sides of the aisle. That's something that's very important to us here at Slaughter 19. And we always invite people from the other side and we'd love to have you back anytime in the studio would be great to continue some of the discussion we've had tonight.
2: Sure. Uh, And thank you so much. And, um, I uh, appreciate the chance to be with you and uh, we'll do it again.
0: You're listening to Spotlight 19 and this concludes uh, our episode. Check out the org and thanks for tuning in again. We will be back. Keep the faith.